On this weekend after Thanksgiving, one of the many things I am grateful for is the opportunity, the freedom, to be a Unitarian Universalist. I'm grateful to be part of a tradition that counts among its ranks such luminaries as John Adams, Ben Franklin, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Susan B. Anthony, Clara Barton, and Louisa May Alcott, as well as Ray Ray Bradbury, Sylvia Plath, Frank Lloyd Wright, and so many others. But even as I list with gratitude the names of these famous UUs who helped blaze the trail to make the way for the path that we now walk, I'm reminded that upon closer inspection of each of the lives of each of these people, each of these figures has a unique and often complex relationship with Unitarian Universalism, as may be the case with you. It varied at different parts of their life, how they were born into UUism or Unitarianism or Universalism before that, how they came to embrace it or move from it at some point. So it can become difficult in, uh, to really say on a simple list who was or wasn't a part of the traditions that eventually merged together in 1961 to create the Unitarian Universalist Association. Among those ambiguous borderline figures is our controversial third president, Thomas Jefferson. As a UU World article a few years ago said, the consensus seems to be that he had strong Unitarian sympathies, but did not formally belong to any Unitarian church. Those who prefer to regard Jefferson as an independent deist tend to highlight the letter where he says, I am of of a sect by myself as far as I know. Those who want to hold him up as a UU role model tend to point to another letter where he says, the population of my neighborhood is too slender and is too much divided into other sects to to maintain any one preacher well. I must therefore be contented with being a Unitarian by myself. Now, Jefferson was a regular donor to St. Anne's Episcopal Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, and served on its vestry, but he was also known to worship at Joseph Priestley's Unitarian Church in Philadelphia. We here in Maryland are part of what's known in the UUA as the Joseph Priestley District. Now, I'm personally grateful to count Thomas Jefferson as among history's famous UUs. But whether the historical Thomas Jefferson would approve of being on my list uh, is, on, is one side of the equation. Now, another side of that equation is whether all contemporary UUs want to claim Thomas Jefferson. On one hand, the short list of his accomplishments is stunning. Chief author of the Declaration of Independence, the first Secretary of State under George Washington, the second ever vice president of the United States under John Adams, the third president of the United States elected to two terms, despite those criticisms that he was an atheist at worst and a heretical Christian at best. Coiner of the phrase, the wall of separation between church and state, author of the landmark Virginia statute for religious freedom, negotiator of the, of the Louisiana Purchase, founder of the University of Virginia, known as Jefferson's University. From this perspective, the reasons to claim Jefferson as a famous UU seem obvious. On the other hand, Jefferson infamously participated in the moral evil of slavery. And not just a little, but we'll, we'll get to that. 
In many ways, Jefferson was far ahead of his time, but in the role of slave master, he was a definite product of his time. Some of you may recall that last year, the Thomas Jefferson District of the UUA, which includes Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, voted overwhelmingly at the district's annual meeting to change its name from the Thomas Jefferson District to the Southeast District. This name change proposal had come to a vote at two previous meetings in 97 and in 2010, but it failed to reach the needed two-thirds majority. Too many people remembered all those amazing things that Jefferson did, and we're saying, you know, don't be too hard on him. That second vote, though, in 2010 only fell three votes short. As I've reflected on this debate, I'm of two minds. Thomas Jefferson is one of the many reasons that I'm drawn to UUism his lifelong love of learning, his use of reason to separate antiquated superstition from the authentic core of religious experience, and his emphasis on the need for each individual to discern religious truth for him or herself. For many reasons, I continue to find Jefferson a fascinating human being. Many of you have probably heard the quote from President John F. Kennedy that he said in 1962 at a dinner in honor of all living Nobel Prize recipients. He said, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent and human knowledge that has ever been gathered in the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. (laughs) So from this positive angle... I had mixed emotions when I learned of this recent name change of the former Thomas Jefferson District of the UUA. Now, from another angle, the history of how that name change vote gained momentum is worth noting. As Unitarian Universalists have increasingly embraced the difficult but vital goal of becoming more multicultural, more anti-racist, and more anti-oppressive, the wisdom of predominantly holding up privileged white men from our past has been called into question. Yes, Thomas Jefferson's many courageous stands for reason and religious liberty deserve to be celebrated. At the same time, we need to be honest that Jefferson had some deeply troubling views about American Indians and slaves. Although there has, have been, had been dissatisfaction for many years with that name, Thomas Jefferson District, the catalyst for change came in 93, when the Unitarian Universalist Association's annual meeting called the General Assembly was held in Charlotte. During this event, it became obvious how naive many white UUs could be to how painful it had been for a long time for many people of color Um, for Thomas Jefferson's name to just be constantly lifted up without any accompanying caveats about his faults. The flashpoint became the Thomas Jefferson Ball, in which attendees were invited to attend in period costume. Some of you may can anticipate the problems here. Uh, Hope Johnson, an African-American UU minister, expressed the frustration of many UUs when she asked whether she and other African-Americans should come wearing rags and chains. This episode helped galvanize a movement to change the name of the Thomas Jefferson District that grew for the next 18 years until it finally succeeded. Now, these tensions about Jefferson's strengths and Jefferson's weaknesses are the turbulent undercurrents um, beneath my goal this morning of articulating what it might look like to practice a Jeffersonian spirituality for today. 
To begin with the more positive aspects, I feel fairly safe in saying and speculating that a a Jeffersonian spirituality for today would be Unitarian Universalist. In 1822, Jefferson wrote in a letter, I rejoice that in this blessed country of free inquiry and belief, which has surrendered its creed and its conscience to neither kings nor priests, that the genuine doctrine of only one God is reviving. And I trust there is not a young man now living in the U.S. who will not die a Unitarian. Now, Jefferson was wrong in that prediction. (laughs) But perhaps his cutting-edge religious sentiments are only now starting to come to fruition in our own day with the rise of the so-called nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the many people who identify on surveys as spiritual but not religious or as irreligious. These nuns are prime candidates for Unitarian Universalism, where you can be spiritual and religious, or where you can be an atheist, humanist, and agnostic, and still want to be part of a religious community that searches for meaning. A Jeffersonian spirituality for today would also be open to the best of modern scholarship and science. Jefferson was a voracious lifelong reader across all disciplines. The only sense in which he was Trinitarian, though, was in his reverence for Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and John Locke. He called them, my trinity of the three greatest men the world has ever produced. Relatedly, a Jeffersonian spirituality for today would be unafraid to question sacred cows. As the congregational consultant Bill Esom has joked in the title of one of his books, sacred cows make gourmet burgers. The consummate example in Jefferson's life was his audacious project of taking a knife to the Bible. He cut out the part of the Christian Gospels that he found contrary to human reason and his own experience in order to cut and paste his own Jefferson Bible. Look it up. You can order it in a bookstore and see a copy. A Jeffersonian spirituality for today would also emphasize firsthand religious experience, similar to what we you use call the first source of UUism, direct experience, which you know is true for yourself. Reacting against the establishment religion of his time in which tax dollars were used to support one state-sanctioned religion over others, Jefferson was against what's known as sacerdotalism. He rejected the idea that priests had a special access to reality that was unavailable to everyone else. That's why I'm not your priest, but your minister. I'm not one who exclusively is endowed with some special ability to intervene with the divine on your behalf. I'm one who stands beside you and accompanies you on your spiritual journey, on your free and responsible search for truth and meaning. In addition, looking at Jefferson's lifelong habit of hosting convivial, freewheeling dinners with both his friends and political opponents, a strong argument could be made that a Jeffersonian spirituality for today would be hospitable. I would even hazard to say that it would be Eucharistic in the best and broadest sense of that word. The authentic core of Jesus' teachings were strongly influential on Jefferson, and a core of Jesus' work was transforming society by the simple act of eating meals with everyone he met, friends, strangers, even enemies. Now, there's much more that could be said about a Jeffersonian spirituality for today, such as how it would be open to mystery. Jefferson did believe in an afterlife. 
But for now, I need to transition to how a Jeffersonian spirituality for today would need to learn from the errors of the original Jeffersonian spirituality. Jefferson was in so many ways ahead of his time. Consider the implications of the words he inscribed to the preamble of the Declaration that you heard earlier. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These truths, we should be clear, were not self-evident in Jefferson's day and were indebted to Jefferson, to John Locke, and to similar figures for helping make these truths seem more widely self-evident today. Similarly, the American experiment in self-government was truly a risky experiment with no guarantee of success, and were indebted to Jefferson and other founders of our country for helping secure the success of our government that is founded not on the hereditary right of a king, but on the consent of the governed. In other ways, however, Jefferson was, like all human beings, a product of his time and place, particularly in his views about American Indians and African Americans. Jefferson did not believe that widespread multiculturalism was possible or would ever be possible. He could not foresee the path to an America that would elect a biracial president named Barack Hussein Obama to two terms. Regarding American Indians, Jefferson said, I would never stop pursuing them while one of them remained on this side of the Mississippi. He lived before the Trail of Tears, but he, when the Cherokees moved west, an awful bloody um, death-filled event, but he really helped lay the groundwork for what made that possible. Regarding slavery, Jefferson owned more than 600 slaves in the course of his life. He inherited 150 from his father and father-in-law, but he bought roughly 20. Most of the others were born into slavery on his lands. From, 74 to 18, from 1774 to 1826, Jefferson tended to have about 200 slaves at any one time. The range ran from 165 to 225. And Jefferson's solution for ending slavery was similar to his recommended approach for um, dealing with the so-called American Indian problem a removal of the problem element to ensure the security of the white way of life from which Jefferson benefited immensely. Now, early in his career, Jefferson did try to pass a law in Virginia that would emancipate all the slaves born after a certain day, but it was contingent upon deportation at a certain age of those same freed slaves. But even that compromise measure failed And even at the end of his life, he maintained that nothing is more certain or written in the book of fate than that these people, meaning slaves, are to be free. But nor is it any less certain that the two races, equally free, cannot live under the same government. Now, further complicating Jefferson's views, you've probably seen these headlines, DNA tests in recent years have confirmed that Thomas Jefferson had multiple children with his slave, Sally Hemings who incidentally was the half-sister of Jefferson's wife. Uh, Jefferson's father-in-law had six biracial children with Sally Hemings' mother, of whom Sally was the youngest. Uh, Specifically regarding the children of Jefferson and Sally Hemings, it was said that in one case the resemblance was so close that at some distance or in the dusk, the slave dressed in the same way might be mistaken for Mr. Jefferson. 
but Mr. Jefferson never betrayed to anyone the least consciousness of that strong resemblance. Thus, a chorus of opinion holds that Thomas Jefferson's greatest failing was his entitled embrace of white privilege. And one response is to just take Jefferson down from the pedestal of historical memory, as was done in the removal of his name from the title of the Southeast District of the UUA. Now, a related response is to turn the focus back on ourselves. Championing the Jeffersonian attributes that we admire is honestly pretty easy today, as is, especially after the revelation of things like the Sally Hemings um, relationship, it's become pretty easy to criticize the Jeffersonian attributes that we deplore. So perhaps the more challenging invitation of a Jeffersonian spirituality for today is asking how our cultural context causes us to tolerate discriminatory practices that future generations will find as repugnant as we find Jefferson's tolerance of slavery. Now, I'd invite you to reflect on what standard parts of our culture you think future generations might find deplorable. For myself, myself, I'll confess that I wrote this sermon a few days ago on Black Friday, and my search for a contemporary parallel was likely influenced by that timing. As an e-postcard circulating on Facebook says about Black Friday, only in America do people trample others for sales exactly one day after being thankful for what they already have. (laughs) Or as comedian John Fugelsang tweeted, Black Friday is the shift from Thanksgiving to things-getting. This Black Friday context reminded me of an essay by one of my favorite philosophers, the late Richard Rorty. He wrote an essay back in 96 titled, Looking Backward from the Year 2096. He writes, Just as 20th century Americans had trouble imagining how their pre-Civil War ancestors could have stomached slavery, So we, at the end of the 21st century, have trouble imagining how our great-grandparents, that would be us, could have legally permitted a CEO to get 20 times more than her lowest-paid employees. We cannot understand how Americans 100 years ago could have tolerated the horrific contrast between a childhood spent in a ghetto and one spent in the suburbs. Such inequalities seem to us evident moral abominations, but the vast majority of our ancestors took them to be regrettable necessities. And a regrettable necessity is precisely how Jefferson viewed the presence of American Indians and the presence of African Americans as slaves in a land that he thought it was preferable for rich white men to rule. As I was reflecting on alleged regrettable necessities throughout history, the tragically predictable Black Friday headlines began to roll in. San Antonio man allegedly pulls gun on line-cutting Black Friday customer. Man threatens to stab Kmart customers as Black Friday line gets ugly. Walmart strike hits 100 cities but fails to distract Black Friday shoppers. My thoughts in response were, how can we shift the focus of our society, so that we are less shaped by desperate, frenzied consumerism. And from the perspective of Thanksgiving's embrace of gratitude, at what point have we as individuals and a society achieved enough, just enough, 
as it said, enough is as good as a feast, as many of us know from Thanksgiving when we had engorged bellies filled with more than enough. Now, I'm not saying that it's inherently wrong to be rich, nor am I saying that profit motive is intrinsically bad. It's just a truth of human nature. Instead, I think that we just need a stronger commitment to the common good that emphasizes not just profit alone as the bottom line, but a triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. We need all three. We need to work to change the parts of our society that cultivate constant dissatisfaction, short-circuit gratitude, and create a false perception of economic status. For example, perhaps you've heard during the election or perhaps you've heard in this uh, run-up to the so-called fiscal cliff that the U.S. middle class is anyone whose combined family income is above the poverty line but less than, does it matter the amount? $250,000, right? That's the amount we hear, a quarter million dollars. But here's one columnist's description of why that framework is problematic. If the middle class's ceiling is $250,000, a quarter million dollars, and its floor is the poverty line, then 83% of Americans are middle class. That number defies common sense. More troubling is that so many ostensibly middle class Americans aspire to be rich. Our expansive use of the term middle class gives 98% of people permission to feel that they're missing out on the good life that they should keep grasping for more. But the aspirations of the relatively well-off should not stand in the way of the basic needs of those the economy is leaving behind. The solution includes a simple rhetorical shift, daring to call those with six-figure salaries what they are, rich. I mean, that's and this may be good news. This doesn't have to be bad news. You may be rich and you didn't know it. The invitation is both for more people to realize they're rich and to acknowledge that the threshold for being rich is much lower than is often recognized. For many years, um, studies about the Jeffersonian pursuit of happiness have shown that the reciprocal relationship between increased income and increased happiness basically decreases precipitously, it essentially drops off, once you make around $75,000 a year, around $75,000. Science has also demonstrated that generously helping others generally makes us much happier than indulging ourselves, especially after a certain threshold. Naming that the threshold to enter the upper class in our society is more like $100,000 a year. Now, it's just the lower upper class. It's more like $100,000 a year, not $250,000 a year, could give a larger percentage of our population permission to feel satisfied, to feel content with their current wealth and less resentful of attempts to secure a social safety net for the poorest parts of our society. Likewise, how might our societal mindsets be changed with an emphasis not on who wants to be a millionaire, but on research showing that the beneficial effects of money on happiness taper off entirely at the $75,000 mark? What if we just let people know that? Jefferson's white privilege blinded him to the possibility of a multicultural society which we now know is not only possible, but preferable to a white male aristocracy. At his best, Jefferson knew that all people are created equal, but like so many of us, he failed to live up.
fully to his highest and best ideals. This morning, I've been inviting you to consider that the easier task is criticizing Jefferson's faults. From our perspective, a comfortable 200 years later, on the other side of a bloody civil war and a hard-won civil rights movement that helped us achieve the still imperfect equality that we do enjoy today. The more challenging task is to confront the parallel truth that just as Jefferson was either unable or unwilling to see a path toward less racial inequality, we may be just as unable or unwilling to see the path toward less class inequality. The invitation is to learn from Jefferson's negative example and realize that our culture doesn't have to be this way. Social reforms throughout history have forged new status quos that to many people were simply unimaginable until they became the new normal. Jefferson was born a citizen of the British Empire and died a free citizen of a free nation. He eventually became what we call now today, the leader of the free world that 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 position became. Those of you who have seen the film Lincoln, how many have you seen Lincoln? A few of you. It's it's worth seeing. You've been reminded of the complicated machinations behind the passage of the 13th Amendment, ending slavery once and for all in this country. A similar hard-fought sea change is washing over our country today concerning same-sex marriage. We can and we have changed. We can and we must continue to change our society for the better. And as we struggle for social change, it's important to remember that the loss of privilege is not the same as reverse discrimination. The loss of privilege, male privilege, white privilege, heterosexual privilege, socioeconomic privilege, is a move toward social justice. It is not the same as reverse discrimination. As this sermon ends, I invite you to reflect on what it might mean for you to incorporate some aspect of Jeffersonian spirituality for today into your life. Do you feel led to to a courageous embrace of reason to separate superstition from authentic religious experience? Do you feel led to practice an inclusive hospitality that invites diverse people to break bread together? Or perhaps you feel led to do your part to change some systemic part of our society that fails to live up to our best ideals, to the best of the Jeffersonian vision, that all people are created equal and are given inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.